So here in 2 Samuel, uh, as we pick up the story of the life of David, we pick it up at a time when David has just come through a very significant crisis. You know, that counts as a significant crisis. If one of your sons leads a rebellion, tries to overthrow you as king, and then tries to kill you. That's what's been happening to David. And all the people of Israel almost, uh, nearly all the people of Israel, followed after Absalom. And they took part in this rebellion, this political coup to overthrow David. But Absalom, his son, as we saw, he wasn't content with just being king. That wasn't enough for him. He wanted to go a step further. He wanted to go all the way. And he wanted to kill David in order to solidify his position as king. And so we saw how David left Jerusalem. He went into exile. He fled into exile. And a few thousand people who were loyal to him went along with him. And he fled beyond the Jordan River. And Absalom, he brought this army to attack these people who had followed David into exile. And the ultimate goal, of course, being to kill David himself. But Absalom's greed and Absalom's vanity ended up leading to his own downfall because Absalom ended up being killed in that battle. So that's just kind of some background. But we saw how David, when Absalom died, when he won this battle, rather than being glad that he had won the battle, David was instead, he was terribly grieved that he had lost his son. And we, we saw that at the end of our sermon, our study last week, how David just said, Oh, my son, my son, Absalom, if only it could have been me who died and not you. If only it could have been me who died so that you could live. David loved his son, even though he was rebellious, even though his son hurt him and sinned against him, David continued to love his son. And we see in that the heart of God towards us, that even though we rebel against God, even though we sin against him, he never stops loving us. And what David only wished that he could do by dying in place of his son so that his son could live, God has done for us in Jesus Christ, who died for us in order that we might have life through him. In order that through him we might know the life that is truly life. But the death of Absalom does create kind of an interesting scenario now, doesn't it? I mean, because the people of Israel have rejected David as their king. They've followed after Absalom, but now Absalom's dead. So what are they going to do now? Where does this leave them? Well, what they're going to do here in these chapters, in chapters 19 and 20, we're going to see the return of the king. We're going to see that they bring David back as king over them. And, and in this return of David as king over Israel, we get a picture. A picture for those of us who have at one time or another pushed God away and told him, we do not want you to be king over us. We get a picture of what it looks like to bring God back into our lives as king. So we're going to see three key aspects of this for you note takers who like outlines. Here you go. First we're going to see, number one, the swaying of the king. Number two, we're going to see the responding, uh, responding to the king. Number three, we're going to see keeping the king as king. And in this, we see this pattern, this picture of what it looks like for those of us who have at one time or another pushed God out of our lives, what we do to bring him back in, how he comes back into our life and uh, takes the throne again. So we start with the swaying of the king, starting in verse 8. It says, now Israel had fled every man to his own home, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he's fled out of the land from Absalom, but Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? 
So David is in exile still at this point. He's beyond the Jordan in the city of Mahanaim, and he's in exile. And the people of Israel, they find themselves in a bit of a quandary now, don't they? Now, they have rejected David as king, but the guy that they rejected him for, Absalom, is, is dead. He's out of the picture. So they start debating amongst themselves, what should we do? Do we bring David back? They, they're kind of debating whether or not they should do that. Now, try to apply this same principle to your own life. Have there ever been times in your life that you've sort of pushed away God as king over you? And in place of him, you have followed after, you've accepted, you've taken on counterfeit kings, false kings like Absalom. I think that in all of our lives, there are times in which we push God away. In fact, I think it's our very nature to push God away as king over us and to set over ourselves Absalom, right? A false king, a counterfeit king. The truth is that there's only one true king, right? God Almighty, the ruler of heaven and earth. And if you make him king over you, Lord of your life, then he will give you all that you need and ultimately he will fulfill all of your deepest desires and the longings of your heart. But the thing is that just like the people of Israel, our hearts are prone to wander. And we have this propensity to reject the true king and follow after counterfeit kings. Counterfeit kings who promise to give us all the things that we want more quickly and more easily than the true king can or the true king will. And so oftentimes we, we follow after these counterfeit kings believing their empty promises. They're lofty but empty promises. Now think about Absalom. This is exactly what he did. He made lofty, huge promises to the people of Israel. Make me your king and I'll do everything that you desire. But of course they were empty promises that he couldn't fulfill. And like the people of Israel, sometimes we will only turn back to the true king once our false kings, once those Absaloms in our lives have been struck down, once they have failed us. I mean, look, the people of Israel are really only coming back to David at this point. They're only reconsidering coming back to David because Absalom's dead. As long as Absalom was around, they were good with following him and not David. And, and think about that in terms of you and I. It means this, that God has a purpose. He has a motivation to strike down those Absaloms in your lives, those things that you've set your heart upon in place of God. It's, God will strike those things down. He will cause them to fail in your life so that you will turn back to him and put him back in that rightful place on the throne of your heart. Now hopefully it doesn't have to come to that. Hopefully he doesn't have to kill your Absalom before you come back to him and make him king once again. You can decide that. It doesn't have to get to that point. You can decide even today that you say, Lord, I want you to be king over me. I want you to have the throne of my life. I don't want to give that place to any more pretenders any longer. But notice this here, Absalom is dead, but the people are not quite sure if they're going to take back David as their king. They're kind of, you know, on the fence. They're debating it. I mean, to bring him back once you've rejected him just a couple weeks or even just a couple months ago, I mean, that takes a lot of humility, right? You really got to eat your humble pie in order to do that. Now, what's interesting, though, is that David... You might think that as a conquering general that he would just go in and assert himself by force and say, look, I'm here, I'm the king, I'm taken over. But that's interesting. I mean, that's what conquering generals generally do, but that's not what David does. He doesn't force his reign, he doesn't force his rule upon the people. 
But at the same time, and this is important, David also doesn't just sit back passively and hope that they'll choose him, right? He doesn't do that either. No, he takes an active approach, but his approach is to sway them. We read in verse 11, And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abithar the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the words of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me. And more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man. And they sent word to the king, return both you and your servants. Absalom is gone, but the people of Israel have not decided yet whether they are going to embrace David as their king again. So here's what David does. He doesn't just sit back and hope that they choose him. It says in verse 14, David swayed the hearts of the people. This is the swaying of the king. David sways the hearts of the people. David doesn't want to force his reign upon them. He wants them to want him. He'd love for them to love him. He's not going to impose his rule upon them. But at the same time, he doesn't just sit by passively either. He initiates. He takes action. And David seeks to sway the hearts of the people towards him. David sends messengers to the people. He seeks to persuade them. He seeks to woo them back to him, bring them back. And David even makes a grand gesture to persuade the people even more. In verse 13, David says, I'm going to make Amasa the, the commander of my army instead of Joab. Now, the reason that's significant is because Amasa was the commander of Absalom's army. Amasa was one of the rebels. He had turned against David. And David is saying with this gesture, he's saying, look, I want you to see, I am willing to forgive. I'm not looking for vengeance. I'm looking for reconciliation. And we see that the people of Israel responded and the people's hearts were swayed and the people said as one man, return both you and your servants. David initiated and the people responded. Now let me tell you this, that is how it works with God as well. In our lives too, this is how the gospel works. God initiates and we respond. That's how the gospel works. God initiates, we respond. It isn't that we initiate and then hopefully God will respond. It's that God initiates and we get to respond to him. And that's a very important difference. You know, because a lot of people, their view of God is that they, they need to initiate, right? And then if they do it right, if they do it well enough, then God will respond to them. They think they need to sway God's heart in order to get him to respond to them. They think, you know, if I do these things, if I keep all the rules, maybe I can sway God's heart. I can win his affection. Maybe I can earn his favor. If I read my Bible and pray every single day, if I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go out with girls who do, then I will sway God and he will respond positively to me and then he'll bless me and he'll give me the things I'm asking for right in order in other words if I do all the right stuff I can sway God to do you know to turn my way positively but you know what the message of the gospel is the message of the gospel is is not that you have to sway God and try to get God to respond to you the message of the gospel the message of grace is that God has already done everything 
And now you get to respond to him. You get to respond to all that he has done for you. He initiates, we respond. That's how the gospel works. In Romans chapter 5, there's this great section where, where God's word asks a question and then answers the question. And the question is this. At what point in your life, at what point in your condition, did God love you so much that he sent his son to die for you? And then that question is answered. It says this, God loved you when you were weak. God loved you when you were ungodly. God loved you and sent his son for you when you were a sinner. And even to the extent it says God loved you and sent his son to die for you, God initiated when you were his enemy. Before you were ever born, God initiated. He loved you and he reached out to you. And he did everything so that you could be saved. Not only that, but he initiated by sending his Holy Spirit to draw you to himself, to draw you to him. You know, the Bible even talks about this great mystery. It says this, that before you ever chose him, he chose you. God initiated. He gave his life for you before you were even born, before you even had a thought about him. He chose you and he called you and he drew you to himself by his Spirit. And like David with the people of Israel, he sent messengers to you to speak to you on his behalf, to sway you, to persuade you, to give him the throne and make him your king. You know, some people talk about finding Jesus, right? That they found Jesus as if he was hiding, right? It's a game of hide and seek. He's hiding, you're seeking. No, the Bible would say just the opposite. No, 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 maybe it is a game of hide and seek, But you're the one who's hiding, and he's the one who's seeking. Jesus said that. He said, I, the Son of Man, have come to seek and to save the lost. He came seeking you. He initiated. He did it all. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. What's finished? Everything. Everything that had to be done for you to be saved and reconciled to God, for you to be forgiven, and for you to be brought near. So the question is this. Well, if he did everything... Well, then what's left, right? Like, what remains? Well, here, there is something left, and you know what it is? What's left is for you to respond to that. Like the people of Israel responded to David, and they said, come and take the throne. Come and reign over us. We also need to respond to that swaying, to that initiation that he has done. And so here's what's next. After the swaying of the king, next comes responding to the king. In verse 15, so the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and bring the king over the Jordan. David is returning to Israel out of exile and there are a whole bunch of people who come and gather there to welcome him back. But there are three people in particular who we are told about in the next section here. Three people whose stories are told, their responses are told in particular. Because the way that they responded to the king is a pattern, it's a model for how we should respond to our king, the king of kings. The first one we meet is this man named Shimei. Let's read from verse 16. Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from uh, Bahurim, hurried and came with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. 
And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet the Lord my king. We meet this guy, Shimei, who uh, just a few weeks ago, we saw him in chapter 16. And there in chapter 16, the scenario was this. David was fleeing Jerusalem because there was this rebellion led by his son Absalom. So David is leaving into exile. He's fleeing. He's disgraced. He's defeated. He's depressed. He's hurt because he's been betrayed by his family and friends. His life is just falling apart. He's losing everything. And at David's lowest moment, this guy Shimei showed up and kicked him while he was down, right? Shimei stood off at a distance, we read, and he shouted insults at David, and he threw rocks at David, and he kicked dust in the air, and he told David, David, you stink, you're worthless, God doesn't have his favor on you anymore, David, and you know what, you deserve everything that's happening to you, and you deserve even more. And, and all, one of David's men, this man named Abishai, at the time, he had asked David, David, can I just have permission to go kill that guy? And David said, no, we're not going to kill him. We're just going to ignore him. We've got other problems to deal with. And who knows, maybe, maybe God wants me to hear what he has to say. But now you can imagine, as David is coming back into Jerusalem as king, I mean, it's one thing to insult a guy when he's down. But now, here's David, he's back as the king. And you can imagine, Shimei's scared. And so Shimei comes to, to meet David. Right as David is crossing the Jordan, Shimei bows down to the ground and repents of what he said and what he did. How are we to respond to our king? We respond, first of all, like Shimei responded to his king, in repentance. Shimei's repentance is a great example of what true repentance looks like. First of all, notice characteristics of his repentance. The first one is this. It was humble. His repentance was humble. Look, he's bowed down with his face on the ground. That's a posture of humility. There's no pretense. There's no expectation. It's humble. Second, he takes ownership for his actions, right? He doesn't try to minimize it. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't try to deflect the blame. He just owns what he did. And he says, I sinned. I've got no excuse for what I did. I deserve punishment, but I'm asking you to please give me mercy. And the third thing is this. Shimei's repentance is accompanied by actions. It's accompanied by actions. He says, I am the first one of all my tribe to come here and meet you, David. I wanted to be the first one to come and welcome you back because I want you to see from my actions that I'm truly sorry. I'm truly repentant. And that's true that True repentance is always accompanied by actions. It's not just words. Now we go on and we see in verse 21. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? For you should this day be, uh, that you should this day be an adversary to me. Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know this day that I am king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. So David's men are, are still itching to kill this guy, Shimei. They, they don't like him, right? But David forgives him. 
He forgives this man who had insulted him and hurt him. Now let me ask you this. How about you? Are you able to forgive those people in your life who have hurt you, who have insulted you, who have offended you? Notice what David says. I think this is really key to understanding how David is so readily able to forgive. Check out verse 22. Verse 22 says this. For do I not know that I am king over Israel this day? Aren't I? I mean, I know I'm king and I'm secure in that. Do you see what David's saying? He's saying that the reason he's able to forgive Shimei so readily after all that Shimei's done to him, after hurting him so badly, the reason he's able to forgive readily is because he's secure in his identity. David was able to forgive because he was secure in who he was and who God called him to be. You know, one of the great motivators for revenge, one of the great motivators for holding on to bitterness against other people is insecurity. Do you know that? If you're really secure, if you're really confident in who you are in Jesus Christ, then you can say to somebody, look, I'm a son, I'm a daughter of a great king. I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. I have been given by God all the blessings in the heavenly realms. He has given me a great hope and a joy that surpasses all the issues of this life. He has promised to be with me and give me a hope eternally. So why would I hold on? To this petty bitterness. Why would I hold on to the pettiness of hurt feelings? I can just give it up because I know I am secure in who I am in Christ and who God has called me to be. David was secure in who God had called him to be. He says, I know that God has made me king today. And so because I'm secure, I'm also able to forgive and be gracious to other people. See, the truth is that when you really come to understand the message of the gospel, when you really see how much God has loved you and all that he has done for you in Christ, it transforms the way that you view other people. It transforms the way that you approach other people and how you treat them. See, when you understand how much grace God has shown to you in Christ, it sets you free to be gracious to other people. So Shimei repents and David forgives. The next person we see, the next uh, example of response to the king is uh, with this man named Mephibosheth, who we've, we've seen him come up a couple times. We see him once again here in verse 24. Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet nor trimmed his beard nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. He hasn't taken a bath for like a couple months. It's pretty gross. Uh, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, uh, who was David's best friend, he's also the grandson of Saul. Now it points out that he's the son of Saul here because what that meant was that, see, when Jonathan and Saul both died, there was only one man left who was considered a rightful heir to the throne of Saul, the former king of Israel, and that was this guy, Mephibosheth. But of course, Mephibosheth, he was handicapped, He was lame in his feet. He could barely walk. But David, you know, rather than seeing Mephibosheth as a political rival to be dealt with or to be handled somehow, no, he said, you know what? I'm going to take care of you, Mephibosheth. Instead of wanting to consider him a rival, David said, I'm going to bring you into my house. You're going to eat at my table. And David even adopted him as his own son. But during the rebellion, we read again in chapter 16 that one of David's servants, a man named Ziba, he reported to David that Mephibosheth had betrayed David and joined the rebellion. 
Now, at that point in his life, everybody seemed to be turning away from David. And David was so incredibly disappointed to hear that even Mephibosheth, this man that he had shown so much kindness to, even Mephibosheth had turned against him, that he'd said, you know what, Ziba? I'm going to reward your faithfulness, and I'm going to punish Ziba's faithlessness. And so David declared on the spot, everything that belonged to Mephibosheth, I give it to you. You get all his stuff, all his possessions, all his, all his land, all his holdings. Now, what do you think David is expecting to hear from Mephibosheth? As Mephibosheth comes to see him, oh, hey, David, what do you think David's expecting to hear from him? He's expecting him to say, uh, so, hey, David, I want my stuff back. You gave away all my stuff to Ziba, and I would like it back now. So that's what David's expecting. Now carry on from verse 25. When uh, he came to Jerusalem to meet the king. The king said to him, you need to take a shower. No, he said, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And Mephibosheth answered, my lord, O king, my servant, he deceived me. And your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. But he has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. For my lord, the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak you any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. Mephibosheth says to David, David, Ziba lied. I didn't, I, I... I never betrayed you. I've been faithful. I've been loyal to you this whole time. In fact, I wanted to join you, but I'm lame. And Ziba just took off without me and left me at home. And David says, fine, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to divide your, your former possessions. I'm just going to divide it in half between you and Ziba. Now, that seems kind of weird, doesn't it? I mean, we, we might expect that. Why would he divide it? I mean, Ziba lied. And, and here's Mephibosheth, who's been faithful to him. Why doesn't David restore everything to Mephibosheth? Now, I believe, and this is my hunch, but I believe that the reason is because David wanted to test Mephibosheth's sincerity. I mean, at this point, how does he know that Mephibosheth's telling the truth? How does he know that Ziba really lied? So in order to test the sincerity of the situation, he says, all right, here's what we'll do. We'll just split it right in half. And he wants to see how Mephibosheth is going to react. But the way that Mephibosheth reacts is incredible. Check it out in verse 30. Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all since my Lord the King has come home safely. Now that's incredible. I love that. Here's what's going on. Mephibosheth says, David, you don't get it, man. I don't care about the stuff. I don't care that you gave my stuff away. David, you've been so good to me. You're like an angel, man. He goes, I was doomed to death and you took me in and you loved me and you cared for me. You know, the way that David treated Mephibosheth is really a picture of God's grace towards us. But Mephibosheth says, David, I don't care about the stuff. Let Ziba have it all. The only thing that matters to me is that the king is safe, that the king is on the throne. That's all that I care about. He says, David, I didn't come here to get anything from you. I didn't come to ask for anything. I just want to see you on the throne. That's my number one prerogative. That is what matters to me. And I would ask you this, how about you? Are you a Ziba or are you a Mephibosheth? You see, Ziba seeks out the king because he wants the king to give him some stuff. Isn't that true? A lot of people seek God because I need to seek the Lord. I need to do these things for the Lord because I want to get some stuff. Mephibosheth, though, he doesn't care about the stuff. 
All he cares about is the king and the kingdom. He says, I just want you, O king. I just want your kingdom. You know, it's been said that religious people pursue God because they find him useful. Think about this. Religious people pursue God because they find him useful. But those who have really come to know God, they pursue God because they find him beautiful. That's what we see here in Mephibosheth. He isn't just following David because he wants to get something from him. He's following David because he loves him. Because David has been so gracious to him. And that is what happens when you really understand the gospel. You no longer pursue God because you find him useful. You begin to pursue God because you find him beautiful. And so like Mephibosheth, you respond to the king and you say, I'm not here to ask for anything. I just want your kingdom to come. I want your kingdom to come in my life. I want your kingdom to come in the world. I'm not here to get what I can get from you, O king. I'm just devoted to you. And I care about your kingdom. That's the second response we see here. The response of Mephibosheth. That's, you guys don't even know. It's hard to be up here and say Mephibosheth like 50 times. All right. So this guy, he, that's what he says. Your kingdom comes first. Verse, uh, the next guy we see is this other guy named Barzillai, whose name always reminds me of Godzilla. So that's what I think about whenever I say it. And just, just a little insight into my head. Uh, verse 31. Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, come over with me and I will provide uh, for you with me in Jerusalem. He's inviting him to come live with him in the palace. So Barzillai is a very wealthy man. And when he saw David in a time of need, he said, this is an opportunity for me to use my wealth for the king and for his kingdom. And so Barzillai gave abundantly to the king during that critical time. And David was so appreciative of that. David remembered that. He was so appreciative of that, that when he comes back into power now, he says, Barzillai, I want you to come and live with me in my palace in Jerusalem. Now that's an incredibly high honor to be invited to live in the palace of the king in Jerusalem. But check out what Barzillai responds in verse 34. He says, Barzillai said to the king, how many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what's not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king, but why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here's your servant, Chimham. Let him go over with the Lord my king and do for him whatever sounds good to you. Barzillai says, David, I'm flattered by this offer. Thank you. But look, I am an old man, like really old. I can't even taste my food anymore, right? Like he says, I'm not going to be around a lot longer. I don't even know what's going on anymore. I'm losing it. Now, you know, you're going to bring me up to your palace, give me all the fancy food and all the big shows. I'm not even going to be able to appreciate it, David. How about you take my son? Most scholars, you know, Bible commentators agree that Chimham was the son of Barzillai and so he says David take my son let him he'll be able to appreciate it he'll be able to enjoy it you know Barzillai was a man of great resources and he used those resources for the cause of the king 
And that's a great example for us as an example of how we respond to our king. Not only do we repent, not only do we say, your kingdom comes first, but we also respond to our king by saying, all my resources belong to you. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus told a story about a rich man, but he was a foolish man. He was rich, but he was foolish because although he laid up much treasure for himself on earth, he was not rich towards God. And one night, this man's life was taken from him unexpectedly. And that meant that all the possessions that he had been working so hard to accumulate and protect, none of it mattered anymore. He lost it all. Because although he was rich materially, he was not rich towards God. And, and so this man didn't just lose his life, but beyond that, he lost his soul as well. And Jesus says, that is a tragedy. Barzilla is an example of a man who was rich in earthly possessions and he was rich towards God. And I think that most people, you know, I, I, if I would go out on a limb, I would say this, that most people hear that story or read that story and they say, well, I sure hope all the rich people are listening to this because they really need to hear it. God's got something to say to them, right? But, uh, you know, good thing. I'll just go on to the next page because this story is not for me. Now, now, you may not be rich compared to your neighbors on your street, but I got to tell you this. On a global scale, we live in like the richest society in the world. We in this room, we are some of the richest people in the world. Do you realize that? And so you would better believe it that this parable is speaking to you. You better believe that this is speaking to us, including me, right? The truth is that all of us in here, we have a lot of resources, even as a church, we have a lot of resources and we need to be responding to the king the way that Barzillai responded to his king and saying, all my resources belong to you. Show me how I can use my resources in the way that most pleases you and in the way that serves your kingdom. And the third thing we see in this in this scenario, right? We saw the swaying of the king. We saw responding to the king. And finally, in this last section, we see keeping the king as king. At the end of chapter 19, these final few verses from verse 41 down to verse uh, 43, here's what happens. As David is there, he's there's this big procession leading to Jerusalem and a skirmish breaks out. A skirmish breaks out between the 10 northern tribes of Israel and the tribe of Judah. Now you remember that David was from the tribe of Judah and so David had said to the tribe of Judah, you guys should really come and meet me at the Jordan and welcome me back. Well, the 10 northern tribes, they you know, caught wind of this and so they said, well, hey, why weren't we invited to the party? That's all that happens. They're like, hey, why weren't we invited to the party? So they come down, they have this big shouting match, right? The 10 northern tribes are standing there and they're shouting at the people of Judah. The people of Judah are shouting back and they get in this big argument, which seems kind of silly and kind of petty until this other guy comes along and he takes this ember, right? This kind of smoldering ember of this argument and he fans it into the flame of a full-blown civil war. We see that in chapter 20, verse 1. Now there happened to be a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite, and he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So this guy Sheba comes at this time when David has just been restored to king, right? And, and 
he says to the ten tribes of Israel, he says, look, guys, I guess we're not invited to the party. You know, I guess we're not considered really one nation with these guys. I guess we have no portion in David. So let's go, guys. And basically what he's doing is he's dividing the nation. It's a breakaway state, you would call it, right? He's leading the northern ten tribes to break away from the tribe of Judah and form their own kingdom. And guess, take a big guess, who's going to be the king of the new kingdom? Well, of course, it's this guy, Sheba. So David, he just got done dealing with a civil war, right? And now he's got another civil war on his hands. But this time it's different because David knows in this case, that God has brought him back as king. There's no question in his mind that this is not what God wants for the people. This is not good for the nation. And so David is not going to let Sheba just walk away with the ten northern tribes of Israel like this. So carry on from verse 6. It says this, David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us which is exactly what he's going to do. Verse 7, And there went out after him Joab's men, and the Cherethites, and the Pelethites, and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Now look at verse 14. Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Makkah, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Makkah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battling the wall to throw it down. So Sheba goes and he hides in a fortified city. Now, a fortified city was really the best place you could hide. I mean, if you've ever been to Europe or maybe you've just seen it in movies, they built these big fortresses, right? These big walls, which were defenses against the city, against attacks and invasions. And they had to be pretty strong because if your city is, you know, you can't just like call the police or call the army, right? If your city's out in the middle of nowhere and a big army comes and attacks you. So you got to make sure it's fortified well. So the army of Israel, what they would do, what any army would do against a fortified city, they'd lay siege to it, which would mean that they'd cut off all routes in and out, and they would put up, um, you know, they'd try to breach the walls somehow. And they lay siege to this fortified city where Sheba and his clan are hiding out. And look at what happens from verse 16. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell me, Joab, come here, I, that I may speak to you. And he came near, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He said, I am. And she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. He said, I'm listening. And she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask a counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? But Joab answered, far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up our, or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim, called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown over the wall to you. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Happy ending, right? Everybody lived happily ever after. So... They're laying siege to the city, and this woman from the city comes out and says, Hey, hey, let me talk to you for a second, Joab. She says, Why are you guys doing this? 
If you guys have a problem with us, let's resolve this in a civilized manner. You know, we're one of the best cities in Israel, one of the nicest cities. You guys are going to destroy us? What have we done to you to deserve to be attacked by your army? And Joab says, no, 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 you don't understand. We don't want to destroy the city. We got no problem with the city. It's just that this guy named Sheba has, has been hanging out and hiding out in your city. He's the one we're after. And the woman says, oh, well, why didn't you just say so? I mean, hang on one second. Uh, I'm going to go back in the city, and we'll toss his head out to you, okay? So you guys can, uh, you know, get his head, and you can just go home and leave us in peace. So she goes back inside, and, you know, Joab and his guys are hanging out for a while, and then all of a sudden, here comes this head flying over the wall. Take a look at it. Yep, that's Sheba. All right, guys, let's call it a day and go home. So uh, one of the great Puritan writers was a man named John Trapp. And John Trapp uh, wrote about this section. He drew an interesting uh, parallel, an interesting analogy, I guess is what we would call it. An analogy about the rebellion of Sheba and Sheba hiding out in this fortified city. I found it interesting. Here's what John Trapp said. He said, every man, every woman's life is like a person, you know, every person's life is like a city surrounded by walls. And every sin is like a Sheba that is hiding out inside of it. Every sin is like a traitor to the king which dwells inside of you. And sometimes God will lay siege to the city, the city of your life. But why does he do that? What does he want with that? Does God want to destroy the city? No, by no means. God doesn't want to destroy you. God just wants to root out the traitor. He, he wants to cut off the head of the traitor and have it cast out of the city. And he says, like the woman in the city, that's what we must do. We must cut off the head of the traitor and cast it out to, and put an end to the rebellion so that the city, so that our life can live and prosper and be wholly loyal to our king. So here in this story, in conclusion, in the, in the story of the return of David to the throne of Israel, we have a picture of how we, we who have pushed away God, how we can have him come in as king over our lives. First of all, we see that there's the swaying of the king. God initiates, we respond. We respond how? We respond like Shimei. We respond with repentance. We respond like Mephibosheth by saying to our king, your kingdom comes first. And we respond like Barzillai who said, all my resources belong to you. And finally, we keep the king. We fight to keep the king as king over us. We root out any rebellion. We cut it off and we cast it out. Why? Because our king loved us even when we were rebels. Our king loved us so much that he initiated. He traded his throne for a cross. He traded the crown of Glory for a crown of thorns. He traded the praise of angels for the mockery of men. He traded the highest of heights for the deepest of depths so that he might raise you up. Do you see that king? Do you see him today? Do you see how much he loves you? Do you see how much he has done for you? Let me ask you this. Will you respond to him today? We're going to have a time now of worship and I encourage you respond to the king and embrace the king. I urge you to set your eyes upon the king and embrace him today and give him the throne of your life. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you that you love, loved us when we didn't love you. Lord, you, you said that you loved us when we were ungodly, when we were sinners, even when we were your enemies. Thank you, Lord, that you initiated, that you love rebels even like us. 
Lord, that you do everything to reach out and initiate and bring us in. And Lord, now during this time, we want to take these next few songs as we take communion, as we remember that you died for us. Your body was broken and your blood was shed, Lord. We remember these things and we respond to you now in worship by taking the elements of communion and celebrating the great redemption that you won for us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for how you've loved us. May we respond like the men in these stories responded. May we respond like the faithful woman of the city to cast out and cut off any traitor of sin in our lives. That we might be wholly loyal to you, God. So we thank you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.